Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Aubrey de Grey today to talk to us about advanced rejuvenation technologies, why you should make it your business to minimally live another 25 years, because he and the SENS Foundation together are working on how to extend life, possibly even into immortality. For some of us, this may sound crazy. Others of us know how close the science really is. If any of you have been following Ray Kurzweil, you know that we are living in the law of accelerating returns. And Aubrey de Grey has some really incredible, exciting information for us about our bodies, our metabolism, about the seven deadly sins instead of sins. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Aubrey de Grey to its rainmaking time. Good evening in England. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Well, first of all, thank you for the work that you're doing. I think it's very exciting. It's worth the journey. And you're really carrying the hope for all of us. Well, you're very kind. Thank you. Let's talk about the seven deadly sins and share with us what the Sins Foundation is about. Okay. Well, in a very brief nutshell, what we do is we're interested in the development of regenerative medicine against aging. So what that means is we're interested not simply in slowing aging down and, you know, retarding the rate at which various types of molecular and cellular damage accumulate in the body, which eventually cause us to get sick. Uh, We're interested in actually repairing that damage and taking people in whom there is already a significant amount of that sort of damage and actually fixing it up, actually taking people who are already in middle age, 60 or 70 or even older, and actually repairing them at the molecular level and the cellular level so that they are biologically um, way back to what they were as young adults. In other words, basically rejuvenating them. So many people at the beginning of anti-aging medicine in general thought that the hormones would be able to do a lot more than they are able to do or that a lot of the supplements would help retard aging. You're talking about stopping aging, something we psychologically have ingrained in us to happen in our future. How do you deal with that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Psychologically, it is a big problem. And, in fact, the only reason it makes any sense is because actually the word stopping is the wrong word. I'm not actually proposing that we have any realistic chance of stopping our normal metabolic processes from creating these various types of molecular and cellular damage that I mentioned. What I'm proposing instead is that we let metabolism go ahead and do that as and as normal side effects, uh, um, inevitable side effects of its normal operation, but that we take advantage of the fact that a small amount of those various types of damage is harmless, because otherwise, of course, we would get sick at a much younger age than we actually normally do. And therefore, that we have this sort of window of opportunity to go in and actually repair these various types of damage before they get to a level of abundance that is pathogenic, that's bad for us. How did you identify where the seven deadly sins are? Great question, yeah. So I, I, I guess I had a very very definite eureka moment. It was in the summer of 2000. And I'd been studying, I'd been working in the field of gerontology, the biology of aging, for five or six years by that point. And so I was, you know, I'd been going to lots of conferences. I'd been studying literature a great deal. I'd been publishing my own papers quite a bit. And during that time, I had gained, obviously, a pretty thorough understanding of the existing knowledge as to what aging actually consisted of. In other words, I had a pretty good understanding of what the various types of damage were that were accumulating throughout life, uh, these various molecular and cellular changes that I've mentioned. Um, So the, the big insight was to see how to classify those changes to see how to partition them into a small number of different categories, and more particularly, to see how to categorize them in such a way that within each category, one could actually describe, at least in essence, the sort of way that we might, in principle, go about actually fixing that type of damage. I realized, well, actually, initially, I listed nine different types of damage, but quite quickly, I realized that two of those types were more accurately described as 
essentially um, dividing up between the other types. So that's why it became seven. Um, and within each type, I realized that there was a particular way of going about fixing it. Um, not identically the same approach for every example within a given category, but more or less the same approach. So if we take, for example... Mutations, um, maybe. A loss, as one example of the seven categories. This is simply when cells die and they are not automatically replaced by the division of other cells. Now, we know that basically that's what stem cell therapy is for. It's to fix that problem. And stem cell therapy, of course, is useful in a whole variety of different medical situations, not just in aging. But there are a bunch of aspects of aging that are ultimately caused by cell loss. And stem cell therapy is exactly what we need for that. So that's just one example. What do you say to the people who are afraid of advanced rejuvenation applications and feel that we're interfering with, quote, the natural decay of the body, that we're, quote, not meant to hang out forever or hang out for more than a certain amount of time? How do you deal with that? Well, to be honest, I do have a certain amount of sympathy for that attitude. In other words, I don't agree with it at all, but I do understand why people think that way. Ultimately, the main reason why people think that way is because until very recently, really until this approach that I've been proposing over the past decade, um, it has been impossible, really, to foresee an end to aging. Uh, we, we have, you know, it, the, the, the rational attitude has been, until that point to view aging as something that is not going to be changed by technology for the foreseeable future. And that being the case, and given that we all appreciate how incredibly horrible aging is, um, you know, you've got a choice to make as an individual. You've got to decide how you're going to live your life. Are you going to live your life, you know, being preoccupied by this terrible, ghastly thing that's going to happen to you in the relatively distant future? Or are you going to find some way to effectively trick yourself into putting it out of your mind? Ultimately, the way to do that is to convince yourself that, for whatever reason, aging is actually somehow a good thing. You know, that it would be somehow wrong to be interfering with it. And, of course, you know, the reasons why the people have come up with for defending aging are totally absurd. There's no question about that. But that's okay if it works. You know, if you can convince yourself that aging is a good thing. It doesn't matter how irrational your rationalization actually is. You know what I found out in my own discoveries over time? I found out that if you put bad stuff in the water, if you eat packaged bad food with chemicals that we didn't used to eat years and years and years ago, and if you have bad stuff in the air, let alone the other type of things that people do to themselves, we can expect to be ill. There is something to be said for garbage in, garbage out. How do you feel and what do you think about that too? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I sympathize with that. I think that there's a fair degree of truth in it. However, I do think that it's extremely important for everyone to make sure that they do not overestimate the relevance of that fact. It's absolutely the case that we need to you know, look after ourselves in terms of what comes into our bodies and what gets out of our bodies. But that's not the whole story by any means. We absolutely have to recognize that most of the reasons why we get sick after we've been alive a long time are not aspects of our environment. They are what you might call non-negotiable aspects of how we live. Things like the fact that we have no choice about breathing. We've all got to breathe, and breathing is bad for you. It is the main reason why we, why our cells create free radicals, which are, of course, you know, toxic compounds that react with our other um, cells, with our other long-lived molecules and cause various problems. So, you know, most of what we have to fix is things that are, ira that are not actually dependent on the garbage-in, garbage-out aspect. That's very interesting. Do you think that it's possible that our DNA has changed over time and is more vulnerable now? Um, there are one or two very limited, very well-defined ways in which that is somewhat true. Um, the best uh, example is probably the immune system. I think it's fair to say that people these days have a less good immune system than what we used to have. And there's a very good reason for that. The reason is simply that we have no, we have less need for a good immune system than we used to. A couple of hundred years ago, if you had a weak immune system, you wouldn't last long, 
and in particular, you probably wouldn't last long enough to have kids. Whereas today, we've got antibiotics and vaccines and all that other stuff and hygiene and so on. So you tend to be able to get away with having a weak immune system. The selective pressure not to have a weak immune system is considerably um, less strong than it used to be. So sure enough, we've ended up with people having a weaker immune system, and that's why we get things like more autoimmune difficulties and such like. There are some people that feel strongly that the evidence is also showing that vaccines have contributed greatly to weakening our immune systems, giving 10 and 15 shots to young babies. But you've got to also accept that vaccines have saved lives. You know, the fact is people live longer than they used to. People die of infectious diseases a lot more rarely than they used to, right? So, um, you know, it's a trade-off, but it's a trade-off that has worked out in our favor on balance. So the immune part you see over like an evolutionary period of time, how our immune systems have changed. Right. Okay. And let me be clear about what, what I mean by an evolutionary period of time. The fact is this has been relatively rapid over a few generations. The only the, the, One reason why it's been particularly rapid is because it turns out that women with a weaker immune system are more fertile. Um, that actually makes makes a good deal of sense in terms of what we know about the immune system because... We know that the fetus is immunologically different from the mother, and therefore the immune system has to be in control of itself, so to speak, in order not to to, to treat the fetus as an infection. And the weaker the immune system is, the more likely the the, the mother is to be able to do that. Interesting. You talk about the side effects of metabolism will eventually kill us with regard to aging. What do you mean by that? Well, I gave one example earlier, the fact that breathing is bad for you. So let me go into a little bit more detail on that. What does breathing actually mean? The chemistry of breathing, the reason why we need oxygen and why we breathe out carbon dioxide, is pretty well understood by now. Essentially what the situation is, we have a particular part of the cell, it's called the mitochondrion, and it's responsible for taking oxygen in, oxygen that has come in through the lungs, obviously, and then through the red blood cells, um, and combining that oxygen chemically with nutrients, um, you know, carbohydrates and fats and so on. And that process of combining the, um, the oxygen with nutrients releases energy from the nutrients. That energy is then used for all the things that go on in the body, like, you know, the replication of DNA and the synthesis of proteins and so on and so forth. But the thing is that actually that chemical process is incredibly hairy. It's a really tricky thing that involves a great deal of elaborate use of um, um, metal ions and things like that. And the result is that sometimes it goes wrong. Sometimes the, um, the, 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 the chemistry of breathing causes electrons, in fact, to get into the wrong place, so to speak, in the chain of events and to create molecules that we wish they would not create. The molecule that really starts this whole chain of events is something called superoxide, and that's a free radical, and it reacts with other molecules to create other free radicals, which have a strong tendency to damage our important long-lived molecules like DNA. So, you know, that's, a, that's, that's one of the best examples, in fact, probably the number one most important example of why metabolism, our normal processes of living, are things that we can't live without, but we also can't live all that long with. I think that would be a great thing. So what would you propose, given your experience now and your focus in this area, what would you propose happen with regard to settling that area that goes wrong and produces free radicals with breathing? Do you feel like you're onto something yet? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So, so it's a fine example. So that's actually a great example of what goes wrong um, with the normal approaches that people have previously been thinking about in relation to combating aging. Most people have said, well, okay, so free radicals are bad for you. Breathing causes free radicals. We've got to breathe, so we're going to have free radicals be created. But maybe we can somehow tweak our metabolism so that breathing happens in a manner that does not actually create quite so many free radicals as normal, right? Um, and so that's, you know, that's, that's obviously a, a, a way to go forward in principle, but it's got two problems. Number one is that all it's doing is slowing down the accumulation of the various types of damage that free radicals cause, okay? It's not getting rid of pre-existing damage. Number two, the second problem 
is that it's really, really, really difficult. The fact is, it took evolution a very long time to come up with a system for getting oxygen to combine chemically with nutrients to extract energy that's as safe as it is, but creates as few free radicals as it does. And improving on that is simply beyond us at this point, way, way beyond us. So, um, so, so, so that's really a problem. And I realize that actually we can avoid this problem. We can sidestep our ignorance, if you like, by instead going in and not trying to actually affect the creation of free radicals at all, but going in one step later down the chain of events, looking at the various types of damage that the free radicals do after they've been created, things like the oxidation of DNA and the oxidation of proteins and so on. And, you know, that's an alternative option because that is the problem. The free radicals themselves are not the problem. The problem is the damage that the free radicals do. So if we can repair that damage, then that's just as good as stopping the damage from happening in the first place. And in fact, it's better because we can use therapies on people that have already accumulated a whole bunch of that damage and we can actually repair that damage after the fact. So we can take someone who's, let's say, 60 or 70 years old and use therapies on them that had not been invented when they were only 20 or 30 years old, and yet we can still take them back to being biologically 20 or 30 in terms of the level of damage that they're holding. It's a whole different paradigm, isn't it? Oh, yes. Do you find more and more people are open to you and your work? Oh, very much so. Um, yeah, I mean, it took a while for people to really, um, you know, get, get, get on board with all of this, and that's no surprise. Because the fact is, the um, yeah, the the way of looking at this way of looking at it is somewhat counterintuitive. Uh, a lot of people took the view, well, look, reversing aging sounds like a great idea in principle, but it's obviously, well, obviously, if it's to be defined, it's obviously um, harder than slowing aging down. And you know, it sounds as though it's obviously harder, but it's not because, of course, repairing aging does not actually follow, if you like, the Exact, you know, it doesn't retrace the steps that, um, the, the chemical steps that the initial creation of damage took. It's a repair process instead of a reversal process. The other reason why it was difficult for me to, um, really get this across to people is that when we come down to the actual nitty gritty, the actual details of how one might repair these various types of damage, the types of biotechnology, the types of biomedical expertise that I brought to bear on these problems, were areas that had typically been developed for other reasons. They had not been developed by people who were studying aging, but rather by people who wanted to solve other biomedical or biological problems. And that meant, of course, that the people who were studying the biology of aging did not have very much familiarity with the work that had already been done, which, of course, led to their being unduly pessimistic about how much work there was that was still left to do. But yes, I mean, over the years, over the past several years while I've been pursuing this, I've been able to address that problem really very effectively. Essentially, what I've done is brought the various people with the various um, specialities together and allowed them to effectively educate each other and realize that this is something that is uh, definitely very much on the table and, should, should, and cannot be rejected out of hand. It's very interesting. Do you take a lot of supplements yourself? I don't, actually. And I think it's important to understand why I don't, because I don't necessarily think that supplements are a bad thing, a bad idea. But I do think that the decision whether to take supplements in general or indeed any particular supplement is one that needs to be taken without generalizing. In other words, the biggest thing that one needs to take into account is one's own metabolism. One really has to listen to one's body in order to make these decisions. So... Um, a comparison that's often made, a contrast that's often made, between me and Ray Kurzweil. Yes. Ray, of course, is famous for taking an insane number of supplements. <laughs> and, um, yes. you know, I say it's insane, but I don't really mean that, because the fact is that he's probably right to be doing quite a lot of supplementation. He started out back in the, um, you know, 1970s, early 1980s, um, with a bad problem. Namely, he came down with type 2 diabetes, and that was when he was in his 30s, right? Right. So, you know, that's not, what, that's not normal. Most people don't do that. It's not unknown, but it's pretty unusual. And furthermore, he has lots of cardiovascular disease in his family. Yeah, his dad died of a heart attack. Right, exactly. Right. Um, so, you know, it's a serious problem. And um, when he came down with diabetes, he 
uh, uh, he, you know, he submitted to the standard of care at that point, the standard treatments, and it actually made it worse, as I understand it. Um, so, you know, he really um, didn't think much of that, and he thought about what was going on, and he did his own research, and he came up with his own treatments, his own supplement regimen, and he totally eliminated his symptoms of diabetes, and indeed now, if he's in his 60s, he still has exactly no symptoms of diabetes, which is pretty cool, really. So, you know, I've got a lot of time for the idea that we already have therapies that are around that can address, that can, if you like, normalize the rate of aging of people who, for whatever reason, have drawn some short straws, who are, you know, aging un unusually rapidly in some way or other. But where I don't agree with Ray, where I don't have nearly his optimism, is with regard to the extent to which we can postpone the ill health of old age in people who are already doing pretty averagely well, in people who are going to get to 70 or 80, you know, in pretty good health, whatever happens. Um, those people, for those people, I think at the moment, the evidence, the balance of evidence is that we can only make a very small amount of difference to how long people are going to stay healthy and therefore how long people are going to stay alive. And if we take me, I'm at the other end of the spectrum. I have the good fortune I've been able to get tested a few times over the years for all manner of different um, you know, aspects of my metabolism, 150 different things in my blood and so on. And I always come out incredibly good for my age, way younger than I, my actual age. So for me, I have to, of course, take the view that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I have to really um, you know, be even more conservative than the average person would be. Why do you think we have extra and intracellular junk in our system, and what is that, and how does that come to be? Because I notice those are the two of the seven deadly sins. Right. Okay. So um, this is, again, straightforwardly side effects of metabolism. And in this case, it's side effects that are very easy to describe in, in concrete terms because it is actual material, um, molecular garbage. What it is is basically molecular byproducts of particular metabolic processes, byproducts that, for whatever reason, the body does not know, does not have the machinery to actually destroy or indeed to excrete. So that machinery, that, that material simply accumulates in the cell or indeed in the spaces between cells. And, um, you know, initially, like other types of damage, it's harmless, but eventually it gets in the way and causes serious problems. So, um, if we take an example, we can take um, cholesterol. Cholesterol itself is not a harmful molecule. It's a molecule that the body does know how to metabolize, how to move around the body, and how to use in a, in, in a productive way. But it's not something that stays the same. Unfortunately, cholesterol is quite a reactive molecule, and it has a tendency to get into different states, in particular to be oxidized. Uh, to become slightly different molecules which the body does not know how to handle so well. And when we get that sort of thing happening, we get the accumulation of such material in the cell. So a fine example of this happens in the walls of our arteries. Um, we get essentially uh, particles of cholesterol stuck in the artery and we have cells called macrophages that go into the artery wall to deal with those um, particles, and they deal with those particles pretty well, by and large, but those particles are slightly contaminated by oxidized derivatives of cholesterol, and those derivatives eventually poison the macrophages, the white blood cells that are going to the artery wall, so they cease to work. They become what's called a foam cell, which is the first visible sign of an atherosclerotic plaque. And that is essentially why we get atherosclerosis, cardiovascular disease, heart attacks, and strokes. If that didn't happen, if our cells could metabolize all of the oxidized derivatives of cholesterol just as happily as our cells already metabolize cholesterol itself, then we simply wouldn't get atherosclerosis. Do you see similarly a way to have nanobots clean up the junk in our cells and outside the cells? I think that nano nanomachines, or indeed, uh, much more generally, let's just talk, talk about non-biological solutions to medical problems, are absolutely legitimate. I think it's only a matter of time before we develop such things. And I think that as time goes on, non-biological solutions to medical problems will play an increasing role in the 
inflammatory of medicine, not just for aging, but for uh, age-related age and age-independent diseases alike. However, my own feeling is that we're quite some way off from making that happen. And therefore, I think that what we need to do in order to make sure that those of us who have the misfortune already to be alive are going to survive long enough is to develop the more um, traditional biotechnological solutions using enzymes and such like um, to get rid of this stuff reasonably well to keep us going long enough so that these nanobots or whatever are actually developed in the first place. Oh, I see what you're saying. Almost like a transition phase before they come in. Right. If we go back to Ray Kurzweil's work, right. you probably remember that in Fantastic Voyage, he talked about uh, three bridges. He talked about uh, bridge one being the stuff we can do now, which, as I mentioned, is an area where, personally, I feel that he's substantially too optimistic. Then bridge two, which is essentially biotechnology to um, regenerate the body, which is more or less exactly the work that I do. And then bridge three, which is these non-biological solutions. Got it. So you see enzymes playing a role potentially in... Oh, absolutely. Our approach to getting rid of junk is basically to introduce into the body um, enzymes that come from other species, especially from bacteria. You see, we, we make our own enzymes. We make lots and lots of enzymes, but um, we only make particular enzymes. And it turns out that we don't make enzymes that are capable of breaking down these things that accumulate during our life and that cause these eventual diseases. So our job here is to introduce new enzymes that we may find in other species, especially in bacteria, that will be able to change that, to augment our ability to break things down. And uh, that's actually, if anything, our flagship project within the Sense Foundation back in the research center in Mountain View that we have and also in one of the labs that we fund in Texas at Wright University. Uh, we've got people... Um, beavering away, identifying such enzymes and uh, identifying what they do and how they do it and uh, introducing them into mammalian cells, into our own cells, at the moment only in cell culture, not in actual clinical trials, um, so as to eventually, you know, get rid of this stuff. I have a question about this. The Years and years ago, let's say 30 years ago, actually 40 years ago, there was a woman who, a pioneer named Ida Rolf, who had, who spent a lot of time looking at the fascia that holds the muscles and joints and different parts of the body together. And she's way passed on, but her pioneering time, when she began to say, look, the fascia is not normally looked at. It's just considered just stuff, you know, just stuff in the body. What was considered stuff and not relevant became very relevant in her structural integration model. And my question to you, similar to like an Ida Rolf scenario, Dr. Ida Rolf, is could the intracellular junk and extracellular junk, could we later find out that they were of some value or do you know for sure a thousand percent there's no value to it? That's an excellent question. Thank you. So, um, so um, let's go with the, the, the fascia that you're talking about. So yes. That's actually not so much junk. It's more um, material part of the extracellular matrix, the lattice of proteins that hold our cells and tissues together, um, that breaks down in a way that needs to be fixed. And that's a different problem. That's a, that's a problem that ultimately comes down to cross-linking. And I'll come back to that later if you like. But with regard to the junk that I'm talking about, we can be pretty sure that we are on, uh, uh, we, we are going to have going to have benefits, or at least not do harm, by the um, approaches that we're taking here. So, if we take intracellular junk specifically, um, the place in which we want to improve the degradation of these various types of material is a part of the cell called the lysosome. Now, the lysosome is a garbage disposal machinery. It's a membrane-bounded um, bag, really, which is very acidic, two pH units more acidic than the rest of the cell, and it's full of enzymes that break things down. And yes, we can be absolutely sure that nothing that ever goes into the lysosome is ever intended to come out again. So if we introduce enzymes um, into the lysosome that were not there before, that allow the lysosome to break down stuff that it was not previously able to break down, that it instead just simply sequestered, 
then we know that we are not going to be doing any harm. Uh, we know that all that's going to happen is that the lysosome will not accumulate garbage in the, in the way that it previously did. Now, in the case of extracellular junk, it's a little bit different because we are looking there to get rid of stuff which is not in the lysosome because, of course, there are no lysosomes in the spaces between cells. However, even there, the evidence is very strong that either the material that accumulates in the spaces between cells is simply inert and plays no part in metabolism, or it's actually harmful. There is absolutely no hypothesis out there that says that it could be good for us. And in fact, one way of actually proving that it can't be good for us is you just look at young people. You look at young people and you say, well, okay, where's their extracellular junk? The answer is they don't have very much because they haven't been alive very long and they haven't accumulated it. And yet young people seem to be doing pretty well. So we can be pretty sure that we're on a safe bet by getting rid of this stuff. And of course, their metabolisms are in full gear. Very different, well, right? That's right. That's right. So they're creating damage of all these various types. It's just that the damage has not reached a level of abundance that's bad for them. Very interesting. What about mitochondrial mutations, and what do you think about the powerhouse of the energy body, the mitochondria? Sure. Well, okay, so the mitochondrion is very interesting um, as an example, because out of all of the seven deadly sins that I talk about, the accumulation of mitochondrial mutations is the only one for which we really cannot make a strong and simple case for its causal responsibility for any particular age-related disease or aspect of age-related ill health. There are a whole bunch of hypotheses out there for how mitochondrial mutations may contribute to various aspects of age-related ill health, but none of them is really open and shut at this point, the way that we can argue for each of the other six types of damage that accumulates. Um, however, the, the evidence is, as I say, circumstantial. There is circumstantial evidence that this stuff is, that these mutations are bad for you. And, of course, you know, if we say, well, okay, we don't know they're bad for you, therefore let's just forget about them for the moment, then, you know, we'd feel pretty stupid if we fixed everything else and, and we kept on dying on schedule because of the mitochondrial mutations when we could have spent our time getting on and fixing that problem as well. So I'm very much in favor of going after them as well, going after everything that might be a problem, not just sticking with the things that we know are a problem. Have you ever met anybody like you? <laughs> well, it depends what you mean by like me, I guess. Well, I mean, I mean have you I ever haven't... met someone that was so deeply involved and so clear and was tackling this as if it could actually manifest in their lifetime? Have you ever met anybody like you, like a counterpart? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have, um, by virtue of having carved out a role for myself as some kind of figurehead in this in this field, I have the good fortune to meet a lot of people all the time who look to me as a sort of, you know, inspiration and spiritual leader, so to speak. Um, uh, but many of those people are just as committed, just as talented, just as, you know, um, just like me in that sort of way. Do you consider yourself a spiritual person? I wouldn't exactly say that. I'm not a practical person more, I'd say. You know, I'm a first things first sort of guy. I think more in terms of the fact that I know I don't want to get sick. I know that if I don't do anything, the chances are good that I will get sick sometime in the distant future. I'd like to do something about that. And I'd like to do something about that for other people as well as for myself. What do you think of the calorie restriction emphasis on maintaining longevity until we're able to reach the 25 years that you're going to need? Yeah, I'm pretty pessimistic about calorie restriction. Let's talk about it. Yeah, sure. Clearly, calorie restriction is a regime that works pretty well if you have the good fortune to be a mouse or a rat, or it can extend your life by maybe 30 or 40%, and that's all very well. That's wonderful. Um, but there are actually pretty good evolutionary arguments that say that it's unlikely to work anything like so well for longer-lived species like humans. And actually... If we look at the evidence that we have, the actual data, granted that the data is really pretty much anecdotal, but nevertheless, if we look at what we do have, we can say that it looks pretty bad. It looks as though color restriction may certainly not be completely useless. It may give some benefit to humans, but the benefit will be very, very much smaller than what we have for the um, model organisms that have been studied in the laboratory. 
Um, so, you know, I'm not terribly um, strongly, I'm not terribly optimistic about that. I don't in any way discourage people from doing calorie restriction if they find that it doesn't greatly diminish their quality of life. I think that it's clearly pretty good for you in terms of health if you do it right, um, if you do it, you know, in, in, in accordance with the best information that's available today. Um, but in terms of actually thinking that it's going to give you maybe 20 years of additional life, I think that the evidence, the overwhelming evidence is against that. Have you ever had opponents in the population control arena tell you that <laughs> they wish you wouldn't do what you're doing? Oh, sure. I mean, clearly the concept of, um, you know, people not dying of aging anymore scares a lot of people because they think, well, that means people won't die at all anymore, or at least not nearly in the numbers that they do today, and that that will cause a terrible problem of overpopulation. And, you know, I don't object to people raising that as a concern. I think that it's reasonable to fear that there might be a problem of people, you know, just, you know, with the birth rate exceeding the death rate for a very long time by a large amount and thereby causing a population explosion. But I think we have to be very, very careful in terms of what we do with that fear, how we respond to that fear. There are two things I really want to say about this. The first one is, let's remember that the change in the demographics, the change in how many people there are going to be around, is going to be very slow. People, after all, are going to only carry on getting older at one year per year. You know, there won't be any thousand-year-old people for another 900 years, whatever happens. Um, and other technological changes happening at the same time. Lots and lots of it. Lots and lots of it. So even 50 years from now, let alone 500 years from now, we have no clue what the world is going to look like in terms of the technological opportunities and options available to humanity to, you know, to manage whatever population we may have. And that absolutely has to be taken into account in evaluating the magnitude of this problem. The biggest thing, the second thing I want to mention, is sort of a, con a consequence of the first thing. It's a consequence of the fact that we don't know what the world's going to look like. Because we don't know, we have absolutely no right, no entitlement to assume that it's going to be a problem. It may very well be that humanity of the future will decide that, well, they want to carry on having a large number of kids and therefore, and they, and they can't fit them in, therefore we shouldn't use these therapies or we should find some other way to keep a high death rate, so to speak. Or alternatively, humanity of the future may decide the opposite. They may either decide that actually they can afford to pack more people in or they may decide conversely that actually it's fine to have not very many kids. We just don't know what they're going to decide. And because we don't know, we have, in my view, an absolutely clear and unambiguous moral obligation to go and develop these therapies as quickly as we can so as to give humanity of the future the choice whether to use these therapies or not. If we do the opposite, if we say, oh dear, this sounds terrible, there might be overpopulation, let's not go there, and we vacillate and we don't develop these therapies, then essentially what we're doing is we are imposing our values, our choices on humanity of the future, which it seems to me we quite obviously have no right to do. I think also what's exciting about the work that you're doing is that you are potentiating a huge quality jump in life. In other words, you can be so much healthier, so much younger most of your life and live well wherever you're at. And even to fund that potential by dealing with these seven deadly sins, as you say, is extremely exciting. I also think that just because it's not within what modern science typically wants to invest in and work on, doesn't mean that investing in it and working on it isn't the right thing to do because there are a lot of us who want to live as long as we can, as healthy as we can, be as well as we can to enjoy life. There are a lot of people at many different ages that don't enjoy their life and they don't really care if they're around much longer. Well, you're absolutely right. And I mean, so I love it that, you know, there's no imposing anything, but the beauty of this is to have the option. Right, exactly. We're not going to be tying people down and rejuvenating them by force. But at the same time, let's remember that we are going to be improving people's quality of life and the quantity of life that will result is a side effect of that. So I think you're absolutely right to emphasize the quality of life aspects completely. This is absolutely essential. This is absolutely the key. Um, but the fact is, once we are able to keep people really totally healthy, as healthy as young adults, as long as we like, 
there will be this side benefit that people will live a lot longer as well. And I think that's a good thing. I think that it is absolutely wrong as, um, to do what a lot of people do and say, well, there's this sort of trade-off between quality and quantity. Today there's a trade-off, that's for sure. There are many things that people like to do that they know shorten their lives and they do it anyway because they feel that their lives are higher quality, like you know, people smoke, for example, um, and they don't like the idea of giving it up. Uh, but in a future in which we can actually repair the damage of aging, this is just not going to be true anymore. And in fact, the better people's lives are, the higher quality they are, the more obligation we have to allow those lives to carry on being lived for a longer period of time. So in other words, quality and quantity go together rather than being in any way alternative. In your interview with Live Science, you were sharing contextually about the fact that people really have integrated aging as a part of life. And therefore, people had assumed that they were going to die of tuberculosis. Well, you didn't use those exact words, but basically they assumed that they were going to get tuberculosis and die. Tuberculosis was around and we got rid of that. So you would use that example, which I thought was interesting. So if we exchange that and say aging doesn't have to be around as a cause of death, it really is a paradigm shift. And I think we have it built into us somehow that as we age, we get sick and our body gets worse. And I think that's the first thing that has to go is the thinking that and the assuming of that. Why the 25 years? What made you pick 25 years as the measurement in which we would have these applications to be able to rejuvenate our bodies and live much, much longer, if not forever. Of course, that prediction is a very much, very much a speculative prediction. Like any prediction for future technology that's more than a couple of years away, you've got to be very careful in emphasizing that the estimate is very speculative. But I think we have a 50-50 chance of getting there within about 25 years. And I really want to emphasize that, you know, if things go wrong, if, if we... Um, you know, come across a bunch of obstacles that we don't know about yet, then it could take 100 years. And I think there's, you know, I think there's probably at least a 10% chance that it will take more than 100 years. But that's sort of okay in the sense that, you know, a 50% chance of getting there within 25 years is quite enough to be worth fighting for. Don't you think, Aubrey, that the more people at your level that get involved and the more funding that comes in, the faster this can happen and it can exponentiate beyond what you currently predicted? In other words, it could happen sooner even. Well, let's be clear. The predictions that I have made have actually been on the basis of an optimistic scenario for funding. I have said that if funding is not a limiting factor, then the time frame will be, as I say. And if we look at what's happened so far since I started making those predictions, which is at this point perhaps seven or eight years ago, then the fact is funding has not been sufficient, and I would say the progress has been only about one-third as rapid as I would have expected it to be if funding had not been a limiting factor, uh, which is, now sounds pretty bad, really. Um, now, one-third as fast as it could have been is about what I would have expected, given the amount of money that has actually been available. So, in a sense, that's good. It's sort of, um, you know, uh, it's, it's confirmed my sense of how hard this problem is. Um, but still, you know, the fact is, the more money we get in, the faster we will go. How much are you looking for? The number that I normally quote is $100 million a year for the next 10 years. Okay. So that number is what I've been saying for some time now. And it's what we will need in order, 10 years from now, to achieve what I call robust mouse rejuvenation. So what that means is to take mice that are already in middle age before we do anything to them and fix them up, actually repair the damage that they've got comprehensively enough that they no longer have um, much of a problem and that they live uh, an additional two years over and above how long they would have otherwise lived. Now, I think that sort of goal is what we need in order to unambiguously, unequivocally convince everybody that it's only a matter of time before we can do the same thing to humans. And that's what we need to achieve. Once humans are on the, uh, on the, um, you know, in the frame, so to speak, once, it, once people are convinced that it's going to happen for humans, money will be no object. You know, it will cost a great deal more to get from mice to humans, but that's okay because the money will be forthcoming. 
The problem is to get to that proof of concept point, uh, to convince people that the money is worth spending. What about the concern, and this is just coming up as I'm listening to you, what about the concern of pharmaceutical companies who feel on some level that if you get too close to this, you may put their purpose out of business or that you will get in the way of their profits because you're working on something that they won't be able to touch, really, the way you're going to affect it? It's an important question, but it's not nearly as bad as you might think. Um, so you're absolutely right that at the moment, the pharmaceutical industry and the medical industry in general makes most of its money out of sick people. And what I'm proposing is to stop people from getting sick. So you would think they wouldn't be terribly keen. You're absolutely right. But actually, it's a little more complicated than that. It's a little subtler than that. Because what we've actually got is the scenario in which people would need to be actually taking, periodically, medicines that stop them from getting sick. And those medicines are, you know, going to cost money to make and to um, administer, and therefore there will be plenty of money to be made. Now, it turns out that the pharmaceutical industry, at least uh, uh, two or three of the most important companies in the pharmaceutical industry, have already seen very strongly that this is the way that medicine is going. They've understood that the historical business model that they've followed, the, if you like, the blockbuster drug model, is pretty much dying. It's not something that's going to be sustainable long-term. They need a new model, and the model that they are following is precisely the model of regenerative medicine, the model of developing therapies of very much the sort that I'm talking about. At the moment, they're developing those therapies predominantly for acute conditions rather than for aging, but they're going to be extremely well-placed to be at the forefront of profitability in terms of defeating aging using regenerative medicine in the foreseeable future. I totally agree with you, except the only part that I felt would be a potential hindrance in my original thinking was when an industry transitions, it still wants to transition with the same numbers before it gets into this new direction. It doesn't want to lose the numbers. So sometimes in the transition, when you reroute the direction, the numbers drop because you have a different course. And you're not seeing the returns fast enough. So that's what I was talking about in this age of transition. Sure, I, I, I agree in principle. And I think the situation would be much more um, fragile in respect of the advent of regenerative medicine if it were not for the fact that the existing business model that the pharmaceutical industry have is breaking. The fact that it's simply becoming in, uh, uh, financially inviable now, the blockbuster drug model because it just takes too long and too much money to get a drug all the way through clinical trials into FDA approval. If that were not true, then I would have a great deal of sympathy with your concern that um, the, the, the pharmaceutical industry might actively resist this work. So basically, am I hearing correctly that there is a motivation and maybe hunger for this new direction? I think there is certainly a lot of interest in it. I think okay. people in the pharmaceutical industry are still you know, biding their time with regard to exactly how soon it's going to be before this is the way they want to go, but they certainly aren't going to be taken by surprise. Aubrey, what about brain aging, and does it have to do with metabolism, and is it a completely separate area of rejuvenation therapies? How have you dealt with that? It's very much an important thing. It would be rather pointless to solve everything in terms of the aging of the body and yet end up with the brain still decaying in the same way that it does today. Um, but luckily, brain aging is not significantly different from the aging of the rest of the body. The brain is made of very much the same stuff as the rest of the body. It's made of cells, and cells are made of DNA and lipids and proteins and so on. And the same seven things that go wrong in the rest of the body also go wrong during the aging of the brain. Okay, so you feel like it's covered. Look, don't get me wrong, it's not easy. And um, in some ways, the brain may be uniquely difficult. Um, the biggest reason why it's uniquely difficult is because every other organ of the body, whether it's the liver or the heart or whatever, can, of course, be replaced wholesale. We can create a whole new one outside the body using tissue engineering and just do a transplant. And if you did that with the brain, that would rather defeat the object, so to speak. Um, <laughs> Indeed. But, 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 um, uh, but, but at the cellular level or at the molecular level, which is what most of the therapies that we want to introduce uh, uh, in this approach um, consist of, um, there, is, there really isn't all that much difference. Got it. How did you come up with the SENS Foundation? Well, the whole thing started back in 2002 when I met Dave Goebel and we started the Methuselah Foundation. 
and the Methuselah Foundation was created um, end of two, beginning of 2003. Um, and, uh, you know, Dave and I were a perfect team to do that because I had all the scientific expertise and background and material, and he had the business background, which I certainly didn't have. So that was extremely effective. Um, the um, Sense Foundation <clears throat> was created in 2009, and it was created because we felt that the Methuselah Foundation was suffering from having two activities, two, two um, um, themes that were, if you like, um, competing or at least um, um, diminishing each other by, in, in terms of the messaging involved. The Methuselah Foundation was originally created to administer the Methuselah Mouse Prizes, these prizes for um, uh, beating the world record for mouse lifespan. And that was a very useful goal. It was something that we were able to use to raise the profile of longevity research among the general public, especially among people who you know, didn't really want to think about science very much, science scares them, um, but who, who identify with you know, world records and, and um, uh, um, prizes and stuff. Um, but then when we started also to be um, a, a, a bona fide uh, research funding body, uh, an organization that actually sponsored specific research projects, we obviously had to be very different. We had to project an image of very clear you know, responsibility and um, expertise and so on, which is very much the opposite of that sort of glitzy populist approach that we were taking for the prizes. And we never really found a good answer to that. We never really found a way to, um, you know, to, to, to square that circle and to get those two activities to complement each other in the way that we had hoped that they could. So eventually, um, after a bit of self-searching, we decided that the best way to, was to have two organizations. And so we created Sense Foundation as a completely independent organization. And the Methuselah Foundation divested all of its research activities into the new organization. And the Methuselah Foundation went back to being predominantly uh, the one that, um, uh, that administers these prizes. I think that's great that you did the soul searching on it and looked and were able to see what you needed to do. A lot of people see it, but they won't make the changes to do it. So congratulations to you on that. Well, right. Yes. There's one particular person who was our development officer at the time who really kick-started that. And I am, um, you know, I'm eternally grateful to her for doing that. You have a background in computer science. Your wife is a biologist. And did she inspire you to get into biology, the biology of aging? My wife is indeed a biologist, that's right. And when we met, I was, as you say, a computer scientist. I was not working in biology. I'd given up biology in high school at the age of 15. Um, and I learned a lot of biology just informally, by accident, over the dinner table over the subsequent few years. Um, so in that sense, my wife did indeed inspire me to get into biology. However, not into the biology of aging. That was not an area of her interest. Um, in fact, the reason why I got into it was likely because she was not interested in it. Or to be more precise, it was because not only was she not interested in it, but also I became aware that most biologists, almost all biologists, were uninterested in aging, regarded it as not a particularly interesting problem, not a particularly important problem. I was absolutely horrified by that. I couldn't understand it at all because it seemed completely clear to me that it was actually the world's most important problem in biology. Um, but eventually having, you know, become aware that this really was the case, that there was nothing to be done, um, I felt that, well, my only option was to actually get involved myself. Very, very exciting. What does she think of your work today? <laughs> oh, she's pretty proud of me, I guess. She's still, you know, it's, just, it's not something that it excites her and, um, you know, gets her out of bed in the morning the way it does for me, but, yeah, she, she thinks I've done okay. Why did you call SENS the Strategies for Engineering Negligible SENS Science? What does that mean? Uh, uh, senescence. Yeah. Okay. So the reason for that is a bit historical. I figured. <laughs> yeah, it, it starts out from the phrase negligible senescence, which was a term coined more than 20 years ago now by a very eminent gerontologist named Caleb Finch. Um, and he used this term to describe species that do not age. Or, to be more precise, species that, if they do age, they age so slowly that we can't tell by looking at a population and, and measuring how many there are of any particular age. Um, so he defined negligible senescence in that way. Negligible as in imperceptible, if you like. Um, and so 
I, I, I simply coined the phrase engineered negligible senescence as um, you know, the, the, the process of creating, a, of turning a species that does age into one that doesn't, which of course is the goal here. Um, and then, you know, strategies just go with that. <laughs> you remind me of Richard Branson of the rejuvenation biotechnology field. <laughs> you sound as optimistic as he did for Virgin. <laughs> I meant that in a good way, though. I meant it in terms of your passion and your well, commitment you. and your love in seeing this through. And you have a very high opinion of Richard Branson, and I'm completely amazed that he hasn't already got involved in all of this. I am surprised, too. I'm what really surprised. I think he's still focused on Virgin Galactic and getting these flights out within the next couple yes, of years. Yes, he's not the only one. Quite a few of the more obvious supporters of all of this seem to be much more interested in rockets than they are in people's lives. Well, we'll see what we can do about that. I think there's a lot of people that would be interested and more people need to know about you. And I have one last question, and I really appreciate your time today. Right. That is, what do you think is going to be the direction of preventing cell loss? And could you explain to us why there's cell loss and what we do know about it today? Because I know it's one of your seven deadly sins. Sure. Cell loss is a quite, fairly easy one to talk about. So why does it happen? Well, there are certain cells in the body which are simply not designed to be replaced. So they're designed simply to live for a very long time and hang out and, and, um, and not die throughout the whole of the organism's life, throughout the whole of the human, human being's lifespan. Um, fine examples of that are neurons in the brain. Most neurons simply are not designed to be replaced. And that's okay by and large. Most of the brain is a sufficiently you know, well-protected place that there is very little in the way of cell loss. Um, however, there are one or two parts of the brain for which that's not true. And there's a particular one called the substantia nigra in which the neurons create a chemical named dopamine and the process of creating dopamine has side effects, um, in particular side effects that create toxic molecules that sometimes kill the neurons. So the rate of cell death, the rate of death of neurons in the substantia nigra is much higher than it is in almost every other part of the brain. And, of course, it varies from, different, from person to person. Some people have a higher rate of cell loss than others in that particular region. And the people who have the particularly high rate of cell loss are the ones that come down with Parkinson's disease as a result. So the question then is, as you say, what do we do about it? And the answer is very simple. We put the cells back. We, or rather, to be slightly different, what we do is we put cells back that are the precursors, the progenitors of the cells that have gone missing. So we put the cells in and they then divide and differentiate into the cells that we've lost. That's a process which works really well if we can do it. But we have to get the progenitor cells into just the right, what's called epigenetic state, just the right frame of mind so that they know exactly what sort of cell they're supposed to turn into. And that's tricky. Um, there have, however, been um, a number of very good successes in this area already. Um, there have been clinical trials of cell therapies for Parkinson's disease putting cells back into this particular region that have worked really, really well. We haven't got it reliable enough yet. There are other trials that have happened that have not worked so well because, for whatever reason, it hasn't been done quite correctly. So there's still some work to do to figure out the fine details, but it looks very promising. My mother passed away of Alzheimer's, and I had to watch many years of my mother turn into somebody else. Even though she was still her, I had to watch a very traumatic thing happen to my mother. And... I know that Alzheimer's is on the rise, and I was wondering, do you have any ideas about how that may be prevented or stopped? Right. Alzheimer's disease seems to be a much more complicated disease than Parkinson's. There are lots of things that go wrong in Alzheimer's disease. The accumulation of at least two different types of molecular garbage, one inside the cells and one outside, and also the loss of cells. And I believe that a cure for Alzheimer's is going to involve treatment, uh, you know, a multi-part treatment, in, uh, um, including the elimination of all of these types of damage. Some of these things are going quite well, in particular the removal of the extracellular junk. It's going very nicely. There's a, a, an approach to that which involves vaccination, 
and which is already in clinical trials. Actually, it's already in phase three of clinical trials, the last phase before regulatory approval. So everything's looking pretty good um, that way. But as I say, I don't think that's going to be a complete cure on its own. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Aubrey de Grey. He is the chief scientist for the SENS Foundation at SENS.org, Advancing Rejuvenation Biotechnologies. We so much appreciate you making your time and your expertise available to us and your mission. We're excited about what you're doing, and thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you.